Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Please visit audiblepodcast.com slash best for your free audiobook download. Now, welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Ring of Fire, Counterspin, On the Media, The Onion Radio News, The Colbert Report, and The Young Turks. Now be warned, we will be discussing the current state of our culture, so there will be lots of swearing in today's show. Next up, we've got a question from Jerry, who listens to Air America on the mic 92.1 out of Madison, Wisconsin. Jerry wants to know if there is any way that we can get Americans to wake up and realize that Fox and other so-called news sources are just opinion and often give false information as fact, such as Bill O'Reilly stating that Minnesota had declared Norm Coleman the winner in Minnesota, when really they did not. Well, you know the old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. That's basically the case with Fox News. The viewers of Fox are almost like this fanatic religious cult. You know, they will swear on their mother's graves that this channel really is fair and balanced and that none of the hosts, not one of them, has a political agenda. In their minds, they honestly believe that these people are reporting them facts and not just opinions or completely made-up stories. But, you know, in doing some research on this question, came across a personality disorder known as delusional disorder, and the symptoms of this disorder seem to perfectly fit the description of a Fox News viewer. Now, here they are. This is, you know, textbook delusional disorder. The person expresses an idea or belief with unusual persistence or force. The idea appears to exert an undue influence on the person's life, and the way of life is often altered to an inexplicable extent. Despite their profound conviction, there is often a quality of secretiveness or suspicion when the person is questioned about their views. The individual tends to be humorless and oversensitive, especially about their beliefs. There's a quality of centrality, meaning that no matter how unlikely it is that these strange things are happening to them, the viewer accepts them relatively unquestioningly. An attempt to contradict their beliefs is likely to arouse an inappropriate, strong emotional reaction, often with irritability and hostility, and the belief is, at the very least, unlikely. The person is emotionally overinvested in the idea, and it overwhelms other elements of their psyche. So, I guess what I'm trying to say here is that you need to start treating Fox viewers as if they were mental patients. They aren't going to change, so the best thing to do is just smile at them and move on. Money don't make money I'm reaching out for the higher ground. National radio show commonly greet the host by proclaiming, Sean, you're a great American. And why not? 
Hannity uses his radio show and Fox News TV gigs to ferret out any hint of anti-Americanism. After all, who warned you more often or at more ear-splitting volume about Obama's anti-American friends Reverend Jeremiah Wright and Bill Ayers, or the anti-American forces like Michael Moore, the UN, and Air America? That's why we were really, really shocked to learn that Hannity's website is hosting a discussion and poll about the best way to violently overthrow the U.S. government. There's a lot of talk on this board about armed revolt, wrote one Hannity.com regular. He started a poll to find out what form of such a revolt Hannity fans would prefer. The three choices were a military coup, an armed rebellion by civilians, or a war for secession by certain states. Nothing was offered for anyone crazy enough to prefer the status quo or nonviolent resistance. For anyone interested in the score, Hannity.com voters preferred armed rebellion over war of secession by a slender margin. Now, in all seriousness, hosts can't necessarily be held accountable for everything that appears on their websites, though that is, as a matter of fact, the position of Hannity's Fox News colleague, Bill O'Reilly. But just try to imagine the Fox News frenzy that would have followed the hosting of such a coup discussion by a left-wing website during George W. Bush's tenure. So you knew that I was going to have to take a minute out and tell you guys about Audible. And I'm in this really lucky position of having used the service a lot in the past. I can just tell you from experience that they have a great selection of audiobooks, as well as a whole library of other kinds of premium audio content to go through. The most recent thing I got from them was Al Gore's book, The Assault on Reason. And my takeaway from using Audible is that these guys are the ones who got it right when it comes to downloadable audio content on the web. Now, I know that you felt lucky before just because you were able to listen to this show. Now, it's even better because as a listener, you're going to get a free book from Audible. All you have to do is go to audiblepodcast.com slash best. That's how they know that we sent you, and they will bestow upon you the free audiobook of your choosing. audiblepodcast.com slash best. Go there. Check out all the good stuff for yourself. Five weeks ago on the British program Newsnight, the famously relentless host Jeremy Paxman tackled the issue that is eating away at good parents everywhere. Now, I've got a child who uses a social networking site like Facebook or Twitter or something who hasn't, you might say. Well, their brain's being rotted, or at least that's more or less what the Daily Mail claimed this morning. The paper was citing Baroness Susan Greenfield, who told us today that repeated exposure to screens could rewire the brain. It follows if the human brain is so impressionable, if the environment is changing, then the brain might change too. There is no the Baroness, a neuroscientist at the University of Oxford, willingly conceded that the problem, in the absence of any actual proof, was still theoretical, but then caused a ruckus by just as willingly speculating on the psychological damage posed by long hours spent online. A shorter attention span, an emphasis on process, on the experience of the moment rather than content of an identity that needs to be bolstered up with Twitter and uh, perhaps an, an increased recklessness. Greenfield says the internet is stunting our social development. A report in the British magazine Biologist claims it's making us lonely. An article in last summer's Atlantic asks, is Google making us stupid? 
So what is the Internet doing to our brains? Inquiring minds want to know. Two years ago, writer John Lawrence suggested in the Canadian magazine The Walrus that the Internet is probably making our minds more inquiring, and not in a good way. I came across some studies that had identified these two terrifically descriptive terms, informivores and information foraging when you're working online. There is this craving for information. It's difficult to know when to stop. And you can quickly come to the conclusion that you can go on link by link by link ad infinitum. Down the rabbit hole. Down the rabbit hole. You're always waiting to get closest to some ideal of a perfect state of information. And, you know, in a pre-digital, pre-internet environment, you could get to that place fairly quickly. Whereas with the internet, I do think that the horizon is much further off, and yet you still crave that. And I do think that's the addictive nature of it. The byproduct of information addiction is chronic distraction. And though there is as yet no hard data on the impact of the internet, there is a vast body of work devoted to the consequences of constant interruption. Most of that research predates the internet, and yet interruption defines our digital lives. We continually break away from one task to attend to another. An email, an instant message, a pop-up, a purchase, a quick detour offered by an intriguing link. We call it multitasking. I would say that we don't actually multitask. We serial task. Frank Russo, director of the Science of Music Auditory Research and Technology Lab at Ryerson University, says that if we could do two tasks at once, we wouldn't crash the car while talking on the phone. What we really do is flip back and forth, constantly breaking our mental flow. So we might be entertaining a thought, and we might be trying to think about, well, how does this fit with other things I know? How can I advance what I'm looking at and get to the next step? All of that hard cognitive work is taken away once we get that pop-up message. So if we're doing something that involves some sort of complicated thought, developing an argument of any kind, it's not going to be as efficient if we have constant disruptions. So does that mean that Google is making us stupid? We've been getting more intelligent as assessed by standard intelligence tests progressively over the last 50 years. So that's the part I don't get, I have to say. Somehow we're getting more intelligent, but it's also clear to me, just anecdotally from my own experience, that people seem to have less tolerance for complex arguments. I don't know how those things add up. At UCLA, we recently did a study that we affectionately termed Your Brain on Google. Gary Small, director of the Memory and Aging Center at UCLA and author of iBrain, Surviving the Technological Alteration of the Modern Mind. And uh, what we did was to look at the brain in real time when it searches online. And we found that older people who had prior internet experience showed a much greater degree of brain activity than those who were naive to the internet search experience. So the headline became, Google is making us smart. And I don't think it's that simple. I think in some ways, Google may be making us stupid because we spend not as much time thinking about issues in depth Less depth, more breadth. There are trade-offs with every new technology. Socrates complained that writing things down was bad for the memory. We hear that same complaint about digital technology. We can't remember phone numbers because they're stored in our cell phones. Boo-hoo. There is a limit to how much we can hold in our brains, isn't there? 
You think? <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, several have said that, you know, the brain functions like a computer. You have RAM. I think back on the things that are in my mind taking up space that I wish I could get rid of, like the theme song to the Patty Duke show. I don't really need that anymore. That's but... haunting you, too. My God, what a coincidence. <laughs> now that you've said it, I'm going to be thinking of that the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> but as a result, that's a little bit of space that maybe I could have devoted to something useful, but I can't delete that memory. As somebody who knows so much about memory, the fact that you can offload some of these unnecessary bits of flotsam is a good thing. It expands our capacity, right? That's right. And we don't need to remember a lot of these details. We need to know how to get the details. But we can't offload social skills like we can phone numbers. What about the concern that constantly connecting through online social networks is rendering us less capable of connecting in real life? A recent British study found that the number of people saying that there is no one with whom they can discuss important matters nearly tripled in the last two decades. Lee Rainey directs the Pew Internet and American Life Project. In the data that we gather in our research, we don't see a lot of increased levels of loneliness, increased levels of isolation. Rainey's project offers periodic updates on the future of the Internet. We see that people use the Internet and use their cell phones in an additive way. They add to the number of people that they interact with in the world, and they don't use those devices as substitutes for other kinds of human contact that are enriching and helping people's lives. There are lonely people in the world. There are people who are inclined to withdraw from the world, and the availability of these technologies does help them stay isolated. But for the vast majority of people that we talk to and we look at in our research, they say these technologies are adding to their social well-being, and adding to the richness of their social lives. Psychiatrist Gary Small, who wrote the book iBrain, is among many experts who expect that someday holograms will be able to replicate the experience of meeting face-to-face. -face. It's also increasingly likely that the technology will give us a chance at a kind of intimacy we may never have thought possible, the ability to meet mind-to-mind. -mind. We have a little illustration in iBrain where there are people wearing these little headband sensors where they can communicate with their handheld devices or laptops just by merely thinking about it. And those thoughts are wirelessly transmitted to their computer so they can say to each other just with their thoughts, let's meet at Starbucks and not even have to talk.
People are saying happy spring holiday just to piss off Bill O'Reilly. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. People across the U.S. are saying happy spring holiday instead of happy Easter this year just to get under the skin of Fox News pundit Bill O'Reilly. And it's working. O'Reilly, famous for his tirades against the Christmas-excluding phrase happy holidays, has responded predictably. Fox producer Edward Parnell. The simple fact is, is Bill just won't back down from the verbal tirade. Supporters of the new phrase have petitioned the Vatican to create a summer and fall Christian holiday to keep O'Reilly in a gibbering fit of rage all year round. Doyle Redland for The Onion Radio. Waiting for the big fall To take us off Quiet nights and desperate love We need it all of the internet will continue to redefine our personal relationships. But what about relationships on a societal scale between political and religious groups, ethnicities, and nations? Lee Rainey says that all the experts consulted by Pew agree that in a few years, mobile devices will allow us to stay continuously connected to the internet. But they're split 50-50 on whether that's for the good. The optimists say that the more we learn, the more we interact, the more that we discover about the world, it improves our lives and it improves the general social condition. We just get to know each other better and good things happen because of that. The pessimists say that our propensity to be nasty or propensity to shun those who are not in our in-group or the propensity for people to find just information that agrees with their worldview, all of that will be amplified in this new world and so we will become more isolated, more hard-edged in our beliefs and it will be a state of nature more than it will be nirvana. A worry that's long plagued media watchers, like me, is the echo chamber phenomenon in which like-minded people huddle in bubbles in the blogosphere where they never have to confront a conflicting opinion or unwelcome fact, where in defense of the dogma of the tribe, moderates are sidelined and extremists exalted. Rainey conducted a study of people's politics and the Internet during the 2004 presidential campaign. He found that the echo chamber phenomenon is a byproduct of human nature, not the Internet. The net merely amplifies what's worst and best in us all. One of the surprising things we found in that survey was that those who are the most technologically adept and those who are the most engaged with information actually are not in the echo chamber pattern. They are actually seeking out and finding out more arguments opposed to their views than those who are less technologically adept and less interested in political information. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You have just 
blown my mind. So what you're saying is that regardless of their political persuasion, the more comfortable they were in cyberspace, the more likely they were to know views across the spectrum and views other than their own. Right. They essentially behaved like information omnivores. They were soaking up all kinds of information in all kinds of ways. The people who worry about the echo chamber worry that people are going to narrow their universes. Information becomes more voluminous, that people, just as a coping strategy, will only look at the stuff that agrees with their point of view and only deal with the people who support their ideas. But in fact, these omnivores, in particular, the most technologically adept people, are you know scanning every horizon they can, and they can't help but bump into stuff that doesn't agree with them. That's a different response to information from what we've seen before. All the experts we spoke to believe that children growing up on the net will be better at some kinds of thinking and maybe worse at others, that all that time spent online has already slightly rewired their brains. They also assume that the rewiring will advance along with the technology. There's prehistoric precedent for that. Gary Small. I would put forward that all the new technology will create a major milestone in brain evolution, just like the development of the handheld tool did many years ago. How did that change our brains? It, it coincided with the growth of the prefrontal cortex, as well as coevolution of grammatical language and more complex social networks. So that was a, a major milestone, just that one minor invention. So I think that the future brain will be quite an extraordinary organ, and it will seamlessly interface with our external computer technology. Our future brain, freed from the gravitational drag of space or time or even language, will inevitably evolve. And so must the definition of what makes us human, because it's possible that someday we will carry cyberspace inside us and we will no longer know for sure where the human ends and the machine begins. Which brings us to Ray Kurzweil. Ray Kurzweil is a pioneer in the field of artificial intelligence. He's an award-winning scientist and engineer, a millionaire several times over because of his invention. He predicted far in advance that the Soviet Union would crumble, that a computer would beat a human at chess, and that a computer communications network would span the Earth. He even predicted when... Bill Gates has called him the best in the world at predicting the future. Transcendent Man, a new film about Kurzweil debuts later this month, it ponders the dilemma he poses. We cannot simply dismiss so respected, so prescient a scientist, nor can we easily embrace his mind-boggling vision of the future. Kurzweil believes that before the century is half over, humans will merge with their technology. Our mental capacities will seem limitless compared to today, and we will not have to die. He says it's a pretty simple calculation once you factor in the rate at which technology advances. A key issue to understand is that information technology grows exponentially, basically doubling every year. What used to fit in a building now fits in your pocket, and what fits in your pocket today will fit inside a blood cell in 25 years, and it gives you some idea of what will be feasible. You've said that the year 2045 is the year of the singularity. Can you explain what that is? By 2029, we'll have finished the reverse engineering of the human brain. There's already 20 regions of the brain we've modeled and simulated and tested. We'll have very powerful and very small computers by that time. Most of the computers in the world are not yet in our bodies and brains. 
but some of them are in our brains. If you're a Parkinson's patient, you can put a computer in your brain. It's not blood cell size today. It's pea size. And if you take what we can do today and realize these technologies will be a billion times more powerful per dollar in 25 years, 100,000 times smaller, uh, you get some idea of what we'll be able to do. And one thing we'll be able to do is send millions of nanobots, blood cell-sized devices, inside our bloodstream. They'll keep us healthy from inside. They'll go inside our brains and interact with our biological neurons, just the way neural implants do today, and put our brains on the Internet, make us smarter, provide full immersion virtual reality from within the nervous system. And so we will become a hybrid of biological and non-biological intelligence. So over time, the non-biological portion of our intelligence will predominate. And that's basically what we mean by the singularity. When you get out to 2045, we'll have multiplied the overall intelligence of the human machine civilization a billion-fold. And that's such a profound transformation that we call it a singularity. You've just breezed by some extraordinary predictions that our brains and personalities someday will be basically downloadable, that we'll have full-body virtual reality. How will the Internet look and function? How will we interact with it when we reach the singularity? Well, let's, let's take some scenarios from, say, the 2030s. The nanobots in our brain, would, if we want to go in virtual reality, will shut down the signals coming from our real senses. So to our brain, it feels like we're in that virtual environment. And these virtual environments will be very realistic, a counterpart to real reality. And we'll also mix up real and virtual reality. We'll have augmented real reality. So if you look at somebody in real reality, there'll be little pop-ups telling you information about that person and so on. You know, when people write about you, there's often this tone of, I know this sounds absolutely insane, but this Kurzweil guy is really, really smart, and he's created a lot of revolutionary things, so maybe we shouldn't dismiss him out of hand. Well, first of all, I've been making predictions for 30 years. They've tracked very well. It actually is pretty remarkable how predictable the trajectory of these information technologies is. I predicted a World Wide Web tying together hundreds of millions of people emerging starting in the mid-1990s, and I said that in the 80s, and that seemed ridiculous when the entire U.S. defense budget could only tie together a few thousand scientists with an unreliable network. But it grew exponentially, and it happened right on schedule. And we're going to get from here to the world of 2035 or 2045 one step at a time, and it's going to be thousands of little steps. And each little step will be some new product announcement, some new technology. It starts out not working that well, then it works a little better. And we get from here to there through many of these benign steps. But you put them all together, and it reflects a pretty profound transformation. Okay. Let's say your predictions come true. Our brains will essentially be computers, and we'll live in a virtual world. Will we cease being human we will be very much human. Scientists are very fond of saying, oh, there's nothing special about humans. We didn't descend from the gods. We descended from worms. And there's nothing special about the Earth. It's just a humble planet around a routine star. But there is something unique about humans in that we're the only species that we know about that actually extends our reach with our tools ever since we picked up a stick to reach a higher branch. We're already a human-machine civilization. Our tools are part of who we are. They always have been. And that's what's unique about human beings.
privacyharbor.com private and free email services developed a solution for spam, viruses, and identity theft at the source. Not only is privacyharbor.com more secure than online banking technology, but it stands alone by not taking your private content and selling it to advertisers. Gmail, Hotmail, and Yahoo do. Sometimes free email comes at a big cost. Go to privacyharbor.com today and enter the code POD, P-O-D, and get your free and private email along with your complimentary report on the dangers of advertising for the internet users. Privacyharbor.com, because normal email is not secure. Nation, once again, I have been electrified by Glenn Beck. You see, I watch Glenn's show, The TV Balanced on the Edge of My Tub. And after the short-term memory loss and the seizures subside, he makes a lot of sense. And recently, my Glenn Beck fantasy came true. No, not the one where we're marooned on a desert island and we run out of food, so he eats me and I thus become part of him. No, this fantasy. This, uh, <laughs> this is your country. You're still in control, but it seems today like nobody gets it. The voices of our leaders and special interests and the media, they're surrounding us. Pull away the curtain. There isn't anybody there. You, you are the secret. You're the answer. The fantasy where a hysterical Glenn Beck tells his audience of desperate shut-ins through tears and spittle that vague, unnamed enemies have failed them and that it's time to take angry action and, with the help of a celebrity guest, makes a reasonable suggestion. Well, let me go to Chuck Norris and his wife, Gina. The thing is, Glenn, is you're, li you're lighting a spark. That's right. We see a, a spark lit today that could uh, now the people have got to pick up and, and turn it into a raging forest fire. That's right. That's right, Chuck and Gina. A raging forest fire that indiscriminately burns everything in its path if and when the smoke clears. Democracy. <laughs> it's a new project Glenn introduced on his special. Here's the idea. Truth is, they don't surround us. We surround them. Who are them? <laughs> Them's the ones we're surrounding. <laughs> and we... We're the voices in Glenn's head telling him to get us to take back what's rightfully ours. It's all part of Glenn's 912 project. I'll let Glenn explain. We weren't told how to behave that day after 9-11. We just knew it was right. It was the opposite of what we feel today. Are you ready to be that person that you were that day after 9-11 on 9-12? Ready! The, uh, the adult diapers come in handy. You never have to leave your bunker. Now, that's always down there. Now, by 9-12... Glenn doesn't just mean the day after 9-11. It also stands for his nine principles and 12 values that will move us beyond the complacency we felt on 
And beyond the fear we felt on 9-11 to the compassion we felt on 9-12. And hopefully we'll all eventually get to the way Glenn felt on 9-9 of 2005. This is horrible to say. And I wonder if I'm alone in this. You know, it took me about a year to start hating the 9-11 victims' families. I don't hate all of them. I hate about probably about 10 of them. But when I see, you know, 9-11 victim family on television or whatever, I'm just like, oh, shut up. I'm so sick of them because they're always complaining. And we did our best for them. Good point. The 9-12 project is not for families directly affected by 9-11. Just people building their careers on it. Now, Glenn... These people are with you, Glenn. <laughs> Glenn laid out exactly what he wanted and why. Yesterday was exactly six months to 9-12. I'm working on a couple of projects that are going to take me at least six months to do. Saturday, September 12th. I'll share with you what I've been working on, and you show me what you've done. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just love my country, and I fear for it. I'm sorry. I just love Glenn Beck's sanity, and I fear for it. something a little wrong in the culture, man. No, look, there's something incredibly wrong with it, which I guess, I don't know, you're probably going to break soon, but there's something so fundamentally wrong, it's frightening. Like, no, we, I went, we got a couple of I went to go see uh, The Watchmen the other day, and yeah, The Watchmen's not indicative of anything, but I go into the movie, and first, and I don't know whether I'm sounding old, but it was so ridiculously, unnecessarily violent. It was unreal, and there's some guy sitting behind us with his eight-year-old son, five-year-old son, and three-year-old daughter. Did you see the movie? Yes. Just think about those ages. During the, and all, all I could think of is, man, if I was like Department of Social Services, not that I bust a dad, but i definitely keep an eye on those kids for later in life when they flip out and go insane. <laughs> I mean, after you, after you raise children, you, you realize, dude, human beings are monkeys. Monkey see, monkey do. It's just that simple. 
stick a stick a four or five year old in front of the TV, they're going to be mouthing off whatever they see in a heartbeat. Now, that's a when they're eighteen, they'll still do the same thing. They just won't admit it. Right. No, but that leads to a great question, Wes, because the culture is immersed in this, right? Yeah, we're at one hundred percent, and we're drowning in it. But as a parent, you're raising your kids. It doesn't seem like there's a way to keep them all out of it. So what do you do? I, you just limit what they're doing, basically. And you try and spend as much time as you can. I mean, if you look at the cultural models for what they're trying to produce, they're trying to produce, like, non-thinking, homicidal, killer maniacs for boys because every show is about destroying stuff and blowing it up. And with the girls, it's all about looking like hookers, basically. It's unreal when you watch it. You're like, oh, my God. And you think, okay... Here's this kid. The one time in their life they're going to be innocent. The one time before they're going to be like haunted by all this stuff that's out, you know, in the world when they don't have to have fear being a motivating factor for them. The culture just pumps it right into their heads. And for all these people on the right wing, like, oh, that's all the Hollywood stuff. No, it's the market. They've gone to the tween market. I got a friend who's a music producer. Yeah, he produced like uh, I'm not going to name the bands, but a lot of bands that you've heard of from mm -hmm. Parliament to like Chris Isaac. Okay. And he had to get into tween music because that's where the market is, because that's where the money is, because every other segment has already been, you know, seized, so to speak, by the brand makers. So now they're looking for 10-year-olds to, to 13, 14-year-olds to make the money back, to lock them in even earlier. And what you don't understand until you're kind of in one of these culture-producing businesses and you're working on either advertising or the movie businesses, it's all about getting you just to spend the money and to sit and literally not do anything with your life except spend it on these products. So uh, your conclusion, one of the things that you said during the interview was, hey, we should limit advertising Absolutely. to under 14. Absolutely. And it's everywhere. I mean, it, once you have kids and you go to a supermarket with your kids, suddenly you're going to realize there's like toys hidden all over that supermarket. <laughs> and there's candy hidden all over that supermarket. You and the know reason what? it's all right there at the checkout counter is to get your kid to stop screaming to get the candy that they saw on TV that they're told is going to make them happy and cool. What kind of ridiculous concept is that? You'll be cool if you eat this cereal. You'll be cool <laughs> if you eat this candy. No, you're probably going to be fat and diabetic. But, you know, it, it's like, or a truth in advertising statement where you actually see the end result. Like, I want to see the McDonald's commercial, not with, like, the happy, healthy family. I want to see the people I've seen all over the Midwest when I go out, because in a lot of cases, in a lot of towns I go to, that's the only restaurant there is is fast food. And everybody is, I don't mean they're fat. I mean, they're morbidly obese. I mean, the point where you're like, look at that, dude, look at that. Like, and you're constantly just amazed by it. You think, how does this person walk? Like, how do they, how do they get up? Like, I mean, it, it's, you, you see, and then you see people who are like 14, 15 years old who are that obese. And it's all based on the culture you're into. And you're like, you, you've been robbed of enjoying your life.
29th LA Times op-ed, Take the Limbaugh Challenge, conservative writer Andrew Claven tells readers that the popular caricature of the talk show host is misleading. It is a certainty that Limbaugh's liberal detractors have never listened to Limbaugh, unlike regular listener Claven, who has never heard Limbaugh, quote, utter a single racist, hateful, or stupid word, close quote. Well, let's begin with stupid. As Fair's book The Way Things Aren't, Rush Limbaugh's Reign of Error documented, Limbaugh has said such stupidly false things as that the poorest Americans are better off than the mainstream families of Europe, or that there are more acres of forest land in America today than in 1492. After the 2008 election, Limbaugh told listeners that Barack Obama was, quote, going to take your 401k, put it in the Social Security Trust Fund, close quote. And racist? Limbaugh once told a black caller to take that bone out of your nose, and once asserted that, quote, all composite pictures of wanted criminals resemble Jesse Jackson, close quote. When criticized for saying he hoped Obama would fail, Limbaugh said that critics were being told that they have to bend over and grab the ankles because his father was black because this is the first black president. And hateful? How about his homeless Olympics proposal featuring a dumpster diving event or his AIDS updates introduced with the song I Know I'll Never Love This Way Again? Or his wish to see the 2008 Democratic Convention be a, quote, recreation of Chicago 1968 with burning cars, protests, fires, and literal riots, and all of that, close quote. The fact is, the Los Angeles Times has taken on many of these Limbaugh remarks over the years. By now, no reasonable person can say that Limbaugh doesn't say racist, hateful, or stupid things, which raises the distinct possibility that Clavin doesn't actually listen to Limbaugh with any real care. But what's the LA Times excuse for publishing nonsense which has been debunked in its own pages for at least two decades? This is where the party ends. I can't stand here listening to you and your racist friend. I know politics bore you, but I feel like a hypocrite talking to you and your racist friend. It was the loveliest party. I mean, I, I could take you back to the entire problem with the modern economy, because they're all tied together. I mean, there's nothing in life that you can necessarily separate one from the other. They're all a part of the culture, and media and advertising are a very big part of it. If you think about how much TV the average person watches and how many ads they watch, and the way the human mind works, where it really is, it's monkey see, monkey do. Uh, do you look at TV and do you say, that person dressed as a doctor isn't a doctor? You don't. No. And subconsciously, your mind says, that, that, that is a doctor. He looks like a doctor. That couple there with the child getting in the car looking really happy because they've got that car, they didn't know each other before that morning they shot it. That beautiful model you see who looks so confident is like a strung-out heroin addict who has all kinds of like self-image issues, and they're miserable. Or the guy, the, the male model in the suit who looks like the voice of authority is someone who makes like $15,000 a year and is constantly desperate to get photographed and get some money for it. 
It's a, it, they're desperation industries, and they feed on your insecurities. So that most people are going through life believing all these trivial things that they can throw money at and spend money on can make them happy, and it, it's just it's just a way to make a buck. I mean, look at if you want to know what the whole like the powerless white male thing. I mean, if you notice from television advertising for the last several years, it's always you, the father, are an incompetent oaf who can't make your wife happy or your family happy unless you shell out the money to XYZ Corporation who will either get you the movie or, you know, put the sprinkler system in your yard or protect your family with, you know, burglar arms or whatever it is that you can't do on your own, you powerless, gutless schmuck. I mean... That's the way it works. Uh, it's like it's like something. If you go back and you read the book Brave New World, which was written, uh, I believe, by Huxley in like early 1930s, most of that has played out already. It's about consumer culture. It's about soma. It's about the stuff we put ourselves to sleep with, and we've been more or less putting ourselves to sleep for 30 and 40 years and trying to base our lives off images that tell a great story, but reality and, and storytelling are. I mean. <laughs> Very different things. How many women out there just walking nightmares because they've been brainwashed by romantic comedies into thinking, oh, there's that lucky guy you were friends with that's going to be the, you know, that's the one you're going to find. Or how many poor guys have gone through life saying, I can be a, you're not on XM anymore. Like, I could be a total dumbass who never does anything in my life, study, work hard, anything. But if I'm a mensch, at that one moment when it counts, suddenly I'll have riches and the beautiful girl and everything else. Life doesn't fucking work that way. All right. I'm glad it's not the XM hour anymore because this is West Clark and so, unleashed. No, no, I'm t I'm, but, but you're looking at everything in the culture is it's like being in a funhouse because people cannot see reality. They, they do not know what relationships should be like between people because they're trained by watching it with their eyes on television by people who are actors, who are doing stuff written up for them by depressed writers sitting alone in their rooms. Like trying to get that next job. I mean, that's how it works. So we're living in the Matrix. You are living in the Matrix. I think that's why the Matrix was so popular, is because it, it touched on something people couldn't put their finger on. They, okay, there's something wrong with the world. I mean, if you really want to be in the Matrix, I was actually in the Matrix in February when I was in uh, Iowa. I think I was in Cedar Rapids, and I was eating at an Applebee's. And I was eating at Applebee's because there's nowhere else to eat. And I was out, you know, putting a turbine up, and I'm sitting in there alone ordering the Chinese orange chicken. I'm looking around. There's a screen everywhere in this place. Everybody's eating, looking at a different screen of stuff they can't even hear. There's fake sports memorabilia and historical memorabilia and, and pop culture memorabilia all over the walls. And the food was just like terrible, deep fried, like sugar, salt added all to it. And then suddenly... And they've also got music pumped in. So you can never really think. You're never outside of it. And when it was like playing The Clash, I Fought the Law, all I could think was, it's just wrong. It's wrong. It's utterly wrong, and it's disgusting, and everybody's living inside these kind of phony cocoon places. They're, a company doesn't have a personality. There's no such thing as a brand. It doesn't exist. It's something somebody's paid a lot of money to give you an image that you're going to associate with their product. That doesn't mean, like, Geico isn't really a fucking lizard who's trying to get you a deal. Geico is some guys who, like, are playing the numbers with money, and they want you to put your money in there. I mean, that's how it works. 
There's no real brand. Companies don't have a personality. They're just there to take your money. And they're there to take your money by getting you to pay more for something than it's worth. You know, it, the whole thing's a fraud. And it's a fraud. And it applies to uh, not just kids, as we were talking about before. It's every aspect of our society. Now, uh, that's why the bankers can rip us off so much, because we've uh, given up our authority, our judgment. We, we're not making independent it's out judgments. the window. And so if there's a big name, one that's already got, has a lot of advertising mm -hmm. and brand name behind it, a Citigroup or a Chase, whatever it is, you say, all right, well, then they must know. But the thing is, here's the thing, they don't know. And if, if people want to really look around and look for the cause of this whole thing, there's a couple different causes. One is you had a generation that was fairly rational, had a lot of serious racial problems, everything else, after World War II, that built large-scale systems and infrastructure and everything else. They built the structures upon which we've all been feeding off for the last 30 years without really adding anything new to it. And you basically had, in the late 70s, the banking laws were changed so that you could then allow usury, which means you're just charging people a much higher rate of interest. Well, think about it this way. If you really believe in the power of the market, well, if I can only make a 6% return on my money going into manufacturing or I can make a 20% return betting on a future of someone else's future in the financial industry with just paper, where's my money going to go to? It's going to go to the financial industry. It's not going to go towards manufacturing. You can't compete with betting. You can't compete with gambling. And when Dad was running for president a couple of years ago, and I went all over the country, and which isn't that odd for me. I, mean, I grew up kind of all over the country as well. But every place I went to, it seemed like the core industries were like crystal meth, stripping, and gambling. You you can't build an economy on those three things. I, I, I know I'm not, I'm not like saying anything anybody doesn't know, but that's the reality of what's going on because the money isn't there in the banking system. And when everyone in this country goes, oh, Germany and France are shitting all over us at the G20 meeting by saying we need banking regulation, guess what, motherfuckers? You do. You do need banking regulation. It needs to be worldwide. So the money flows into banking instead of manufacturing. Yeah. And then they take a lot of that money home in bonuses and salaries. That's right. In a matter of speaking, they rob it. Okay. They... It's, it's, it's not a matter of robbing. It's, it's also nobody's able to put their finger on it. I mean, many times you look at companies and you say, okay, so this company bought this company, they paid this much money for it. This guy's flying around his private jet, he made like $500 million off it. But somehow they say they're doing it to make the company better. What they're doing is they're liquidating the pensions and health, and health benefits and everything else, and they're just taking the money. The idea that, oh, well, I get paid this much because I added this value to it. No, you didn't. You got paid that much because you cut something apart, you took the value out of it, and you let the company, like, you know, the pieces of it be sold off to China. And the final irony is now they're saying, oh, I'm sorry, we there's no money left, so we can't yeah. loan anything to the manufacturers because yeah. there's no money. And, I, and I'll tell you, I'm, I mean, I'm in the manufacturing business now. It is hard to get loans on anything, even if you're offering, like, 20 25% rate of return. It is really difficult to get any amount of money. We've been waiting all our lives For things we've always had but have no eyes to see Something new is going to happen The most natural thing but nothing we'd expect All these buildings and mountains Slowly they'll arise before
That's what happened a couple of years ago when a couple of entries to a video contest sponsored by the activist group Move On used Hitler analogies to criticize George W. Bush. Fox featured Republican National Committee Chair Ed Gillespie calling the mock ads despicable and denouncing the kind of tactics we're seeing on the left today. Fox anchor John Gibson said it was all part of a hate Bush movement. And Fox host Sean Hannity lashed out at one of his liberal guests, quote, you guys on the left are going so far over the cliff, you're making comparisons to the president and Adolf Hitler, close quote. While Bill O'Reilly said this was proof that, quote, the Democratic Party is being held captive by the far, far left, close quote. All that, even though MoveOn quickly removed the reader-posted videos from its website. Well, that was then. This past April 1st, the newest star at Fox News, Glenn Beck, had this to say about the Obama government. Quote, Our government is marching us to a nonviolent fascism. Or to put it another way, they're marching us to 1984. Big Brother, like it or not, fascism is on the rise. Close quote. Beck's rant came complete with video footage of marching jackbooted Nazis. In addition to revealing Fox's deep hypocrisy, there's a deeper irony in that Glenn Beck, when he was a CNN host, actually threatened Muslim Americans with concentration camps, warning the razor wire will be coming if good Muslims don't start, quote, lining up to shoot bad Muslims in the head, close quote. We know that Fox is unlikely to end its proud tradition of double standards, but Glenn Beck accusing others of being Nazis? What's next? Newt Gingrich and Dick Morris denouncing adultery? It's not impossible for me to cry It's just the hardest thing I have ever done And it's a shame, you know, but it's ingrained, you know Boys don't cry, boys don't cry Say goodbye I was scared, you know And I was mad, you know But boys don't cry Boys don't cry How do we fix the whole problem of the Matrix? Everything's based on a fraud And we know how we got into this, right? And there are good logical reasons how we got into this, right? Yeah But it's not so easy to get out What do you do? You could do everything from truth in advertising to banning advertising for children under the age of 13. I mean, think about it. Somebody who's 8 years old, do they know what they're watching? Do they know what's good or bad for them? They have no idea. They just know sugar is cool. And it makes you crazy, like the bird and the Cocoa Puffs. They don't realize it also makes you diabetic and obese and ugly and everything else that comes with it. I mean, when you drive around the country, you see... A nation that's literally asleep on the couch, unable to see what it's done to itself. And, and it's on both the right and the left. It's, it's not a political issue. It's, it's a human issue of 
you know, what are human beings? They're, you know, slightly more advanced chimpanzees. And monkey see, monkey do. And that's the way we work. And advertising's always, I mean, go back and read like Walter Lippmann in his writings in the 1920s. You know, that's really, that's the birth of the consumer culture. And we've only lived under it now for two generations of human existence. And if the end result after two generations is like what? Is it like 50% obesity rates? It's some astronomical number. Don't worry, Wes. It's a disaster. Don't worry. They're going to get the beauty products, and then they'll be better. Yeah. No. <laughs> we just sell them more beauty products, yeah. more diet products, yeah. and we sell and But we that's sell. what it is. And the pharmaceutical industry is the same way. Nobody's, nobody's really looking for the cure to cancer. They're looking to take care of the symptoms of the disease. No one's looking to cure the disease. Because there's not as much profit in it. No way. The if I cure the disease, you take one pill, boop, that's it. I just got my money from you. I'm not going to get more money. If I have something that just treats the symptoms, you're going to be sick, but you're going to live longer, and you're going to keep giving me the money for it. But that's the kind of, you know, that's just the way it adds up. But then people are going to say you're putting too much uh, government intervention into the society. What? You've already got government intervention. You, you have basically, you know, socialized risk and private reward right now. And you've had it for a good 30 or 40 years. Like the reason, another reason you don't want money in manufacturing and you want to put it in white-collar businesses is because white-collar workers, knowledge workers, don't have any power. They can't unionize. You don't have any special skills. Oh, you really want to strike? Oh, I'll find another guy who can read and write and file something in a folder. See you later. <laughs> I mean, that's the way it works. So uh, you're going to blow past those concerns and say, no, you don't get to advertise to kids under 13. Absolutely. I'm going to regulate the financial Oh, really? Industry. Free speech? No, I'm sorry. No. Okay. Now the Glenn Becks of the world will go ballistic. Dude, Glenn Beck can suck my cock. I don't care what Glenn Beck thinks. Glenn, Beck's, Glenn Beck is an ignoramus. He doesn't know what he's talking about on any subject. The man is not even half educated. All right. Now, it's easy for you to say, but if you're... Uh, you're right. It, it is easy for me to say because I've lived all over the country and I've seen these jokers everywhere. And they're people who grow up in a very small world. They've never really seen, you know, in The Wizard of Oz. They don't know the wizard's really two feet tall. Okay? They've never been behind the curtain. And if they've been behind the curtain and they've seen it, then they just become someone like... Uh, oh, I can't remember the guy's name. One of the guys who was really pushing for the Iraq War... Uh, uh, columnist for the Weekly Standard, oh, Bill, Bill Crystal. Crystal. You become like one of those guys where you know how sick it is and you're still on the wrong side. Yeah, he does know it. For a guy like Glenn Beck, he's, completely, he's ignorant of what he's pushing for. He doesn't know what he's pushing for. He's just a confused, angry guy. It's like if I, if I you know, took my three-year-old and tried to force him to take the SATs, I'm like, get that answer right! And he'd start freaking out and get upset because he would know what the answer is. Well, that's Glenn Beck. You know, someone like Limbaugh is also not very educated, but he, he at least knows what he's doing. He knows the crap that he's selling. Yeah, so, I mean, he has to. But we're so deep in it now that even a, a guy like Obama, if he wants to head in the right direction, is so worried about all the crap he's going to take from all those other guys. Yeah, it's all hot he, air. That he does it so incrementally. It's so all hot air. is there any hope that somebody's going to come in and go, let's clean house? Let's go in the right direction. Not, not unless it's somebody who really doesn't give a shit what people think of them. And unfortunately, those people don't get elected. And hence, we're in the mess we're in. And we're in the mess we're in. But it's, it's also because they're not really given the voice. And the way it's always portrayed in the media is you have somebody who's like, you know, you take someone who's from the fringe, except you take someone who's from the fringe who can't argue very well, and you put them up there, and they just get destroyed by being browbeaten by, you know, TV talk show hosts. 
The, the, the problem, it's very deep in the culture. It's not something that's necessarily right or left. It's just a fundamentally broken part of our, our country. All right. So in the break, we were talking about entertainment business is part of what's wrong. Right? Absolutely. Right. But we're in the entertainment business. No, that's true. Okay. That's true. And so, we also are part of the problem. I mean, look, when every time, and, and I'm as guilty of like hyperbole as the next guy, but every time I, I read something and it's like, so-and-so slams whomever. Nobody's slamming anybody. Nobody's like, like body slamming anyone. They're just talking shit. And you have to recognize there's a certain amount of shit talking on both sides of the political fence. Where people just, you know, people vent, they blow off hot air. It's, it's what people do. It's, it's the substantive stuff that you have to really look at. And it's usually the stuff that's not that exciting. That's the most dangerous, like banking regulation changes in the 1980s. Yeah, uh, well, that it's not dramatic. It's boring shit. Like, who wants to really talk about Social Security and what the problems are? Who really wants to talk about the solutions to global warming? And everything is like, hey, hey, hey oh, let me dance for you. Let me dance for you. Hey, here's what I'm going to show you today. Here's what I'm going to show you today. Everybody like it? Like it? We're not really going to do anything for 10 years. You know what will happen in 10 years? Hey, here's what I got work for you today. You know, we're not really going to solve the energy problem or the carbon footprint problem by saying, we're going to lower it by 20% in growth this year, but somehow we're going to magically fucking cut it in 10? No way. You have to come up with the hard choices now. Now, not in 10 years. In 10 years, you'll have spent through all the fucking money on, like, you know, Rogaine and, like, you know, hard-on pills for people. Because that's literally what we're spending our money on. All right. So the problem is that when you put it all this way, it seems like there's no way out. There is a way out. Okay. Go. I'm telling you what it is. Wake up. That's all you can do. Wake up. Recognize what you're being sold. Look at what's really of value and what's really of importance in your life and go after it. And don't let anybody stand in your way. And don't give a fuck what anyone thinks or what you look like or what your hair looks like or what kind of clothes you're wearing or if you're cool or not or anything else. That doesn't matter. That shit's like irrelevant. All right. So live the life you've imagined. Live the life you've imagined. That's it. Right. And not the one that they imagined for you. Not the one they imagined for you. Not the one they imagined for you. The one you imagined. All right. You have your marching orders. Wes Clark told you to do it. So get to it. Get out there. Seriously. Thanks for listening, everybody. Now, I actually just wanted to take a moment to recognize a milestone we passed. And, um, you know, I'm talking about it now, but unfortunately, I just flat out missed it when it happened. But back in uh, around January, actually around the same time as our three-year anniversary, we passed the one million download mark. And... uh, I thought that was pretty cool, you know, and so now we're, we're up, you know, a little bit past 1.1 million, and um, so I just had to count backwards a little bit to, to figure out when that happened, but, you know, fun times. I say, uh, I say that's something to be celebrated and acknowledged, and um, here's to the next million. So that's it for today. Coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., My name's Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you from bestoftheleft.com.
Just a fond farewell to a friend.